This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver Broncos linebacker Brandon Marshall met with the city's police chief Tuesday. The Denver Post reports that Marshall peppered the chief with questions about police brutality and officer training. Their meeting grows out of Marshall's refusal to stand for the national anthem in solidarity with other African-American NFL players. But long before Brandon Marshall and Colin Kaepernick, there was Denver Nuggets up-and-coming point guard Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. In 1996, he refused to stand. Dave Zirin recently interviewed Abdul-Raouf for his podcast Edge of Sports. Zyron is also sports editor at The Nation and author of What's My Name, Fool? Sports and Resistance in the United States. And Dave, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's go back to the 1990s when Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was playing for the Nuggets and refused to stand for the national anthem. I understand you saw that on TV? Yeah, I saw it on TV, um, but it, but this is 1996. It's before the days of uh, NBA satellite packages or hmm. anything that you could find on the Internet. So what it really involved was reading that Rauf was doing these protests and then gathering in my dormitory common room to hear the latest commentary uh, from ESPN about it. And I'll never forget one of the talking heads on ESPN said, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf must consider himself to be one of those athlete activists like Muhammad Ali or Billie Jean King. And I remember sitting there, 20 years old, and thinking to myself, "What the heck is an athlete activist?" And that's where, where really, you know, I started studying that connection between sports and politics. It all started because Mahmoud Abdul Raouf took a stand. Yeah, this in many ways shaped your career, and you tried to interview Abdul Raouf for many years and finally got your wish just recently. He now lives in Atlanta, and um, I want to thank you for, for sharing some of that interview with us. Here's what he told you about what was going through his mind before he decided he'd refuse to stand. There were things I wanted to say, things that I saw that was unjust, but why am I, why am I afraid? Why am I a coward? Why can't I say this? And I had to slowly begin a process of doing that, which eventually led to the flag. So it sounds like he was really conflicted in the time prior. I I guess put this into some context for us. How unusual was his decision back in 1996? Well, it was extremely unusual because those previous people I mentioned, Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean King, or the people we're speaking about today, like Colin Kaepernick and other NFL players, They're making their stands in the context of a movement. They're making their stands in the context of people outside the stadium raising a de- some demands, and then those demands and that movement ricocheting onto the field of athletics, where it then gets amplified even further. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf is really part of a different kind of political tradition, the tradition of somebody who reads the tradition of somebody who's thinking in in a solitary uh, situation and then believes that based upon what he's read, he really has no choice but to act. Now, the pitfalls of that path, of course, is that there was no cover for Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. He makes his stand, and he was immediately isolated, fined, and punished uh, for taking uh, that risk. And so it was very unusual for its time in the mid-'90s, and it was very unusual in the history of sports and politics. Interesting. In some ways, he, he kind of jumped without a net. And Abdul Rauf told you about his motivations. He said back then he began to have issues with the U.S. flag and the national anthem. These things are, are symbols, and I think they reflect the character of a nation of people or a government. 
and if it's supposed to represent these things of freedom and equality and justice for all, and, and I don't see what that's being necessarily represented, then I couldn't see myself honestly standing up for something like that. He had been, at that point, a recent convert to Islam. What else did he tell you about his motivations? Well, it's so interesting because, I mean, at the time, that really uh, subsumed a lot of the coverage, like the fact that he was a convert to Islam, as if that explained the motivation. But in interviewing Rauf, um, it's really a, a writer of, uh, of Jewish descent, uh, Noam Chomsky, who shaped his political thinking about this. Noam Chomsky is a political theorist who writes a lot about U.S. foreign policy in terms of it being um, an empire, particularly in regards and in connection to the Middle East. And Rauf, in reading Noam Chomsky, he was, he was very shaped and affected by this, and he started to believe, as he said to me, that what was happening uh, was a hidden war, and to remain silent would be the same as saying he was on the side of the United States, and he believed that what the United States was doing was, was morally and politically wrong. He was fined, as you mentioned, suspended from a game for his refusal to stand. And here's how he described to you what happened when the Nuggets head coach called him into his office. He begins to tell me, say, well, hey, they want you to stand or they're going to suspend you. I say, well, Bernie, they tell them to do what they have to do. And I'm so naive at the time. I'm like, well, look, can I go now and get dressed? He said, no, you're suspended now. I said, now? He said, yes. I said, well, can I put my clothes on and, and go support the team? No, you're not even allowed on the premises. So I left. And then that's when it, it hit the news and the rest is history. The rest is history. What, what was the fallout beyond the fine and suspension for him? Well, he found himself slowly phased out of the league. Uh, his minutes became less. He uh, was bounced from a couple of teams during the duration of the existing contract. Because remember, the NBA has uh, guaranteed contracts, and it's actually at the, in the mid-'90s it was very rare for a team to just cut a player because they would have to eat the entirety of their contract. Oh. So he was slowly phased out from team to team until he ended up um, on, the, I believe, the Vancouver Grizzlies, a team that doesn't even um, exist anymore. It's now in Memphis. And his last year in the league, he even led the NBA in points per minute. Uh, he's just an incredibly effective scorer, and yet he couldn't find a home in the National Basketball Association. He was able to play overseas into his early 40s, uh, yet by the time he was in his uh, late 20s, really, early 30s, he was done in the NBA. And he's long maintained, and observers have long maintained, that his political stance is what left him without a home in the league. Not his ability to play the game. Not his ability to play the game. I think I read in another outlet that he had his home burned to the ground, uh, Mahmoud abdul Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, his home in, 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 and, um, is in Gulfport, uh, Mississippi, where he, where he grew up. Uh, and not only was it, was it burned, but uh, the, the local sheriff uh, did not investigate it as an arson, um, which was something that the Raouf family strongly disagreed with. Uh, so, so there were these kinds of personal repercussions and family repercussions, which I don't think he expected when he took his stand. But that really makes it all the more remarkable, given everything that we've discussed, that he maintains to this day that he has absolutely no regrets. He has absolutely no regrets. That came as a surprise to you. It came as a surprise to me because I've interviewed people like uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who raised their fist at the 68 Olympics, and many other athletes who've taken political stands. And there's always that sort of sense 
of just uncertainty about like the path not taken and the path not taken is of course the path of silence and the path of fame and the path of wealth and um, and so there's as you can understand it'd be very human to have sort of a lingering sense of what could have been but that's just not something that Mahmoud Abdul Rauf holds to his heart and he's sort of feels vindicated by this latest round of protests in the NFL and the renewed interest in in him. It it seems to have emboldened him, given him strength, given him confidence. I find him to be a very uh, magnetic speaker, and he seems to have more confidence in his voice to speak. Um, He was raised both with a deep stutter and Tourette's syndrome. There's no sense of that when he speaks whatsoever. Um, There's just a sense of sort of serene confidence. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And in light of recent protests at uh, what have largely been NFL games, but some other sporting events as well uh, at the National Anthem, we're speaking about an incident some decade ago uh, that happened. 20 a, years. 20 years. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's hard to believe sometimes how far back 1996 <laughs> is. My goodness. Time flies. Uh, but we're, we're speaking about a, a former Denver Nugget. Uh, who did not stand at the anthem, and it it really cost him his career. Uh, that is uh, uh, Abdul Rauf, uh, um, and and you were able to interview him, as we said, uh, Dave uh, Zirin at the Nation and the Edge of Sports uh, podcast. Um, does he have a response to people who think that um, not standing is? is offensive to those who fought for the flag or fought for the what the flag represents. How, how does he respond to that? Well, I mean, his response to that is that, you know, it without whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, the standing for the anthem um, is a political act. And if it is a political act, and if this is a society that allows freedom of dissent on the question of politics, then it should be well within uh, the rights of any athlete to not uh, feel like they have to partake in that on a mandatory basis. And i got to tell you, what's interesting, what's such an interesting twist on this whole debate about everything from Colin Kaepernick to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, is one thing that Raouf and Kaepernick are doing is they are actually listening to what the anthem represents and taking it very, very seriously. And you, you sort of counterpose that to... You know, obviously, like fans in the stands who might be getting a beer or going to the bathroom or other players who, you know, their their minds are elsewhere and they're looking all over the stadium or they're thinking about the game or they're sitting on the bench stretching out. And it's kind of, I think, ironic that at this sort of solemn political moment, people are taking it as seriously as the values that the flag and anthem are supposed to represent. And yet somehow this has been a cause for criticism instead of frankly, appreciation. I mean, is what you're saying that sitting out the national anthem is a, is a way of honoring it? It's a way of honoring what it's supposed to represent, uh, which are these ideals of freedom and of these ideals of dissent and of these ideals of being able to fight to make the country live up to the promises that are enshrined in its both its founding documents and in hundreds of years of struggle. Uh, so, yeah, that is that is what I'm arguing. Uh, so what would you say is uh, Abdul Raouf's relationship today with the anthem? Did you ask him about that? Yes, I did. Um, I absolutely had to. <laughs> yeah. And um, he says he still doesn't stand. Um, and he still takes it extremely seriously, um, why he doesn't stand. These aren't uh, blasé thoughts. They aren't casual. 
they, they run very deep into the marrow of his veins because he still believes that a flag and an anthem are supposed to represent the quality of the kind of country that you want to live in. And that until it actually reflects that in his mind, he's going to continue to be a dissenter. Dave, thanks so much. Thank you. Speaking about Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the former Denver Nugget, with Dave Zirin, who does the podcast Edge of Sports. He's sports editor at The Nation and author of What's My Name, Fool? Sports and Resistance in the United States. Colorado voters face a big decision this fall, whether to create a publicly funded universal health coverage system called Colorado Care. It would be the first of its kind in the nation. CPR's health reporter John Daly has the story. It was big news on Colorado's western slope when insurance giant United Healthcare struck a deal to acquire Rocky Mountain Health Plans. It's a local independent not-for-profit insurer. That was just the latest insurance frustration for one of Rocky's customers, 35-year-old Grand Junction resident Andrew Kleiman. It's not working anymore. I think healthcare is not just in need of reform, but in need of overhaul. Since the Affordable Care Act launched, nearly 400,000 uninsured Coloradans have signed up for coverage, cutting the uninsured rate in half. It now covers folks once left out in the cold, those with pre-existing conditions. But Kleiman is ready to ditch the private insurance system for a new tax-funded universal health plan called Colorado Care. It seems basic enough, but a lot of people would disagree that health care is it's a right. It's not a privilege. Kleiman works for an online retail company. He voted for Obama. He's now such a big Bernie Sanders fan, he even has a spoken word recording the campaign sent out. People should not be dying in the United States of America when they are sick. Kleiman was uninsured five years ago when a virus nearly killed him. He now has insurance, but the health care market on the western slope has fewer options than the front range, and it's expensive. Next year, it'll cost him perhaps $450 a month. It would change my life so much to actually be able to afford my own health plan. Under the Colorado Care Plan, every resident would have coverage that would take the place of most private insurance. Consumers would make co-payments but would no longer have premiums and deductibles. Kleiman's wife, Hannah, says she's also ready to opt out of the current system. I guess it could be seen as a little bit of a roll of the dice, but it's something that I would be willing to gamble on. That's a gamble Mike Anton is not ready to take. He owns Mtech Inc. In its Grand Junction workshop, his team rebuilds things like motors and generators. Anton describes himself as a conservative. He doesn't mince words about the proposal, which some people call a single-payer system. I haven't met anybody in the world I live in or the people that I associate myself with that is for a single-payer health care system, not one. Colorado residents would support the plan with a new 10% payroll tax. Your pay stub would show your employer paying two-thirds of that, with you paying a third. Backers of the plan say those taxes will be more than offset by savings from no longer paying premiums and deductibles. But Anton wonders how it'll benefit taxpayers. I don't get it. Colorado Care would be a cooperative run by its members, essentially all the state's residents. Its projected budget is $36 billion dollars. That's about 40% bigger than the state budget. Anton sees it as a big new government experiment, like when the state rolled out legal recreational marijuana. Okay, okay. 
they were smoking pot when they were when they were writing this plan because that's about what it what it represents to me. Somebody who's high on drugs. John Lujan agrees. He's a machinist at Amtech. He says his company sponsored health care hasn't gotten any cheaper since Obamacare launched. He's skeptical of the new measure. It might be good for, uh, you know, underemployed. Uh, it might be good for them, but for the people that actually work, I think that, you know, our prices are just going to skyrocket. The nonpartisan Colorado Health Institute issued an independent analysis of the proposal. CEO Michelle Leake says the plan would save billions of dollars in insurance company profits and administrative costs, money that would go to the new system. If you reallocate those savings and spend them in a different kind of way, we can, in fact, provide universal coverage to all residents of Colorado. But, she says, the study reveals revenues for the new system wouldn't keep up with rising health care costs. Leake says without a tax hike, it would have a nearly $8 billion deficit within a decade. We think that it can't be sustained over time simply because expenses will exceed revenue. Backers vehemently dispute that. Leake says the proposal sets up a fight of epic proportions over this question. Should Colorado stick with the current big private insurer system and its rising costs or opt for a big, new, untested public alternative? I'm John Daly, CPR News. And just ahead, with her first sermon in Colorado behind her, we check back in with the first openly gay United Methodist bishop. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The first openly gay bishop in the United Methodist Church began her tenure this month in Colorado. We first met Karen Olivetto in August, just after her election, which is being contested because church tenants state that homosexuality is, quote, incompatible with Christian teaching, unquote. On Sunday, Olivetto gave her first sermon as bishop, speaking at Park Hill United Methodist Church in Denver. Now, as you heard, I'm, I'm new in this area, and I'm new to this position, and I keep wondering, how did I get here? Now, this is both a metaphorical and metaphysical question. How did I get here? How did you get here? Where are we going? And Karen Olivetto, Bishop for the Mountain Sky area, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. So good to be back. Your sermon was titled Marching Off the Map, perhaps referring to your new situation. Have you figured out where you're going? I'm not. I'm I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other in the path that God is laying before me. And what a beautiful path it is. You mentioned in your sermon that you've been a fan of maps since you were a child. Um, And I'm going to say that the mountain sky area of the church includes not just Colorado, but Wyoming, Montana, Utah, two churches in Idaho. Uh, How much time have you spent in the region? And I wonder if you've done any cartographic exploration, given your, your love of maps. Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, Actually, I took the long road here from the Bay Area to move, and so came through, uh, entered the area through Yellowstone Park and made my way down through Wyoming. And and then, uh, so September 1st, I officially started, and the movers came. And a few days later, I hit the road and visited three churches in Wyoming. Uh, This past Saturday, was very happy to finally hit a trail in the mountains, 
So trying to trying to take it all in. This is gorgeous country, and I'm very grateful for where the maps are leading me. Your previous church, Glide in San Francisco, had 12,000 members. And as you say there, you, you, you went to Wyoming and met with churches, uh, some of whose you know, membership doesn't really total all that much. Why, why did you go there first? I went there first because I can't lead if I don't know who, who the people are, what their needs are, what their hopes are. And so when I was elected, I immediately told the district superintendents who oversee smaller regions of churches, I said, I want tours. I want to visit these churches. I want to get to know them. And I have to tell you what these small churches are doing in their communities, some 100 miles from another community, is really powerful the way they're extending compassion into their neighborhoods and towns. What's an example you saw? Well, I saw, I saw, you know, women gathering to quilt and make sure that, that uh, uh, children in poverty, veterans, others have, have quilts to keep them warm at night. I saw people doing, making sure that people had food on their table. I saw people, churches who gathered to, um, to actually what I was really amazed at is how many churches opened their doors at night to have free community meals, which, you know, we know that hunger is a real problem in, in, the, in the United States and particularly in smaller communities. And so to see these churches open their doors, say, we're going to make sure people have not just a warm meal, but community was really, really beautiful to behold. Particularly among the Wyoming churches, what was the reaction to you? And, and to your election, which, as we've said, is controversial um, in the church. It is, it is controversial, and, and God is doing a new thing, and some people are, yeah, there's, there's you know, some people tilting their head, what is this? But I have to say that, for the most part, uh, it was, uh, I was warmly received, and, and uh, you know, we're going to move into this together. There was great hospitality, very, very generous hospitality. No church that refused to meet with you or anything like that. No church that refused to meet with me. So Sunday, uh, when you spoke in Denver, it really seemed to be filled with intentionality. Park Hill United Methodist Church is a reconciling congregation, the membership voting for full inclusion of LGBTQ people into all aspects of the church. And again, that's in conflict with the larger Methodist Church teaching uh, Park Hill also has featured really groundbreaking speakers, including, I think, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, so why, why was it important for you to yes. give your first sermon there? Well, I don't know if it was important. Um, I, I, I was invited, and, and they're celebrating their 106th anniversary, and so I would have gone to any church um, that invites me. Huh. I think it is, I, I think the ministry they have had is really significant in, in this region. They have broken, um, opened the doors for, for communities of color, for the poor, for LGBT folks. And so it, it was a wonderfully diverse community, but they were the ones who got on my calendar first. Huh. I, I, I go where people invite me, and I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't say no to folks. If people want me in, to come to them, I'm going to come. 
you brought your wife up to the front of the church at the end of the service Sunday, but you didn't specifically discuss the, the controversy surrounding your election in the sermon. Why not? Because God told me to talk about other things. I, I, you know, we're, tr- we're trying to show um, that the United Methodist Church has a relevant message of, of, of hospitality and justice. And uh, there were other things to talk about today. That day. That day. Let's hear uh, a a few of those other topics. When there are 112 guns for every 100 men, women, and children living in the U.S., when you are more likely to die of gun violence than a car accident, we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. When, since 9-11, 52,000 of our young people have been wounded or maimed in the wars in Iraq or in Afghanistan, when when hundreds of thousands of Iraqi and Afghani civilians have been killed, we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. When presidential candidates commit to building walls instead of building bridges, we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. When global warming is evidenced by catastrophic droughts, storms, heat waves, and flooding, yet we are still debating whether or not we should do anything to reverse the trends, we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You framed this, Karen Olivetto, in terms of justice. I want to say that, you know, churches must meet guidelines to qualify for tax-exempt status, and two of them are not attempting to influence legislation, not intervening in political campaigns. Uh, Did you risk doing that there? Actually, we in the church are called to speak out in the issues of our day, and and we we do not threaten our tax-exempt status by speaking out. We are not allowed to endorse a specific candidate. That's where the rubber meets the road. But do you wind up doing that in any case without mentioning a name, mentioning a policy like, um, like building a wall or something? Well, I, I, I believe that, that we in the contemporary U.S. culture really need to be building bridges. And um, we cannot afford in this shrinking global village to isolate ourselves, whether it is within towns or communities or cities or states or even as a nation. We cannot afford that. And, and I see the role of spirituality, of religion, to really seek to, to build bridges between our differences to find our commonality. But I suppose your, your point is you would never say from the pulpit, vote for X candidate or Y candidate. No, I would not. You're correct. So the Methodist Church's south-central jurisdiction, which includes neighboring states New Mexico and Nebraska, filed a motion to have your election declared invalid and wanted it voted on, I think, next month by the Judicial Council. Have you gotten any more clarity about what happens next in that process? Well, the Judicial Council has decided not to take it up on this next in their next meeting, and so it will be brought up in the spring at their spring meeting. So right now, uh, we are, we're just moving forward. I'm the Episcopal leader of this area, and that's, a, that's my focus right now. Mm. Did you hope that it would be brought up sooner so you didn't have to kind of file it away? Actually, I've, I've, not, I've been looking at being a bishop. That's been my focus. 
Who do you turn to when you need counsel? Oh, Ryan, that's a great question. Um, I am very blessed to have a very supportive spouse who loves God and is committed to the work we're doing together. So that's one, Robin. Um, but I also have a covenant community of clergy and laity across the U.S. who I turn to for prayerful support, for honest communication and feedback. And uh, they just keep me human and humble. And I'm grateful for that. Nice to speak with you. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for our time. Karen Olivetto is the new bishop for the Mountain Sky area of the United Methodist Church, which includes Colorado, and she is the first openly gay bishop in the church's history. Just ahead, the end of an era for a longtime vacation spot in Rocky Mountain National Park. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Rocky Mountain National Park, there is a chunk of land that's privately owned, at least for a little while longer. It's just inside the park's northernmost entrance, and it's home to 14 cabins that for decades hosted visitors from all over the world. CPR's Rachel Estabrook met the longtime caretaker as he prepared to close the screen doors for the last time. The story of Cascade Cottages is really a love story, but it wasn't always love at first sight, like when caretaker Richard Seip arrived as a visitor in 1987. As I recall, the, the mattresses were pretty lumpy, <laughs> and the, the decor was not the best, but um, hey, they were cabins. We understood that. Sipe was a widower, and when he came back for a weekend a few years later, he met Grace Davis. Her parents owned the place. We were both from Wichita. I asked her if she wanted to go out to dinner on Saturday night, the last night we were here. She said yes. And so um, we went, went to dinner to Dunraven, and she asked me later, she says, how did you know that was my favorite restaurant? And I said, well, that was the only one I knew where it was. <laughs> they got hitched the next spring. When Grace and I got married, she said, do you know what I do in the summertime? And she had spent every summer out here as a child. Grace Davis's father had just passed away, so she and Richard took over. They replaced the mattresses and the cabins got a makeover. For a few years, they moved back and forth to Kansas. We both retired in 1994, so that we got to spend all our time out here. Grace and I had 24 wonderful years, and uh, she passed away on opening day in 2014. Opening day for the cabins that year. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I see you're wearing your Kansas University Jayhawk sweatshirt. You still got that Kansas pride. She bought this for me. <laughs> Richard Seip has loved the slow, simple life managing Cascade Cottages. Each day in the summer, he checked in guests. We would have a little map of the cottages. And if they're in cabin 13, you just take a little dirt road and the second cabin on the riverside. And that's it. We head out to see it. So this is number 13, which has a beautiful picture window out toward Fall River. But you can see that the flies are attracted by the, the warmth. 
the hand-built cabin has two rooms and no frills, except for a ceiling fan, which is the most modern thing in here. The cabin was built soon after World War II. Several others on the property are even older. Do you have a favorite spot here? My favorite spot is in cabin three, which is where Grace and I reside. It's just a small cabin. It's a one-room cabin, but it's the only cabin in the whole complex that has a bathtub. (laughs) And that's for Grace. This property, which is over 40 acres, was in private hands long before Rocky Mountain National Park was established. Grace Davis's parents bought it in 1941. I asked Richard why his in-laws were interested. Mr. Davis was a conservationist. He loved the outdoors. And his philosophy was that he wanted to be a friend of man and live by the side of the road. And he truly fulfilled that obligation. He wanted to be a friendly man. And the family held it for 76 years, but they also decided, you know, since they have their own lives, they cannot maintain the thing, and I don't know what God has planned for me, we decided to move the property on. Well, we could honestly make a good conscientious decision. The family is selling the property to the park thanks to a promise that the Davises made years ago that whenever they were ready to sell, the park would get the first opportunity to buy. Larry Gamble is planning chief for Rocky Mountain National Park. I am so thankful for the family and honoring the commitment that apparently was just a handshake between L.V. Davis and whoever was the superintendent at the time. I, I don't even know who that was. The park needed help to pay the $3.5 million price tag, and they got it from two conservation groups, the Rocky Mountain Conservancy and the Trust for Public Land. Larry Gamble recognizes that the sale means the end of an era. I can totally understand, you know, the incredible connections to this place. It's surrounded by Rocky Mountain National Park, so it's brought a lot of people here to an incredible setting and generations of attachments. And I can understand the sense of loss. And I think what we do offer is that it will be preserved for future generations to come and enjoy. But he can't say what the park will do with the land or whether the cabins will stay up. The sense of loss Larry Gamble describes comes through when you talk to Dick Aldrett. I first came to Cascade Cottages when I was five years old in 1952. Dick Aldrich's memories of Cascade Cottages are sensory, like crawling into sheets hung up to dry on a clothesline. They just smelled like the day. They smelled like the fir trees and the snow and the air and the flowers and the elk. And the totality of this whole place was in those sheets when you put them on the bed. He stopped by on the day I visited to say hi to Richard and share some cinnamon buns. We sat down in the main office. It has a small rustic kitchen in the back, a bedroom off to the side, and a big living room with an old piano and some plush chairs. What are your earliest memories of being here and maybe being here with the Davis girls? In this room, this is the way it was every night. Guests would come in. And Mrs. Davis would make cookies, 
And this room would be filled with 10 or 20 people just telling their stories. And they were from Africa and Australia and Europe, an array of the most interesting, fascinating people from all over the world sitting right here. And, you know, we, we all have a story to tell. You felt like you were home. And uh, amazing. I'll miss them all. Richard, you just closed up the cabins for the last time in the past couple of weeks. Yes, we're, we're closing them down. Uh, we're putting them to sleep. Uh, draining all the water lines. We'll sweep all this off and get all these pine needles out of here. Yeah, and we'll do the laundry, hang them on the lines, dry them, and that's it. That'll be the last time. If you know anybody who wants a Maytag washer, let me know. A Maytag washer from what, 1950? Well, this this is a 45 model. And it still works, so we're thankful. I asked Richard if there's anything he'll take from the cabins when he leaves. He says no, it's more about the memories. But as I'm leaving, I snap his photo in front of a sign that hangs outside, pointing the way to the office where he sat for so many years. I'd like to take that, he says with a smile, nodding at the sign. I don't think the Park Service is going to mind. I'm Rachel Esterbrook, CPR News. And there are photos from Rachel's visit at CPRnews.org. So do you have memories of the Cascade Cottages? If so, share them on our Facebook page. We are CPR News. Coming up, Denver comedian, now TV star, Adam Caton Holland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The television series Those Who Can't follows three teachers at a fictional Denver high school. Teachers who haven't really grown up. You see, that's the problem. You all act like children. Now you're in charge of children. Hey, Tammy, did I ever tell you I value the opinion of a Chili's waitress more than the garbage that comes out of your face? Oh, hello. Oh, hey. hello to so you. I'm not afraid of you, Tammy. What? The show on True TV is the brainchild of Denver comedy trio The Grolics. That's Adam Caton Holland, Andrew Orvidal, and Ben Roy. They recently finished taping season two, which premieres October 6th. Roy and Orvidal have moved to Los Angeles, but Caton Holland is still in Denver, and he's actually in our studio. Welcome back to the program, Adam. Thank you. It's nice to be back. There's a lot of dysfunction in this show. In, <laughs> in one episode, the teachers try to get a student they don't like expelled by planting drugs in his locker. You play a pretentious Spanish teacher. Ben Roy is the tattooed history teacher with anger issues. And Andrew Orvidal plays a P.E. instructor named Andy Fairbell, who's kind of a punching bag. He's just a buffoon, basically. A buffoon. We're like, how dumb can we make this character? Except that I understand you have a soft spot for that character. I love that character. He, because uh, he's the only, everyone is so self-motivated and just kind of bad. We all play our worst qualities, but he's the only one with a heart of gold. He's always trying to do the right thing. Okay. And did you need that to balance out the sort of negativity of the others? Uh, maybe. It just de- it developed organically. It was never a calculated thing. But yeah, I think you kind of just have to root for someone. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> this show would just be deplorable. How much of the writing evolves organically and how much of it is, uh, I guess, more planned or kind of workshopped out? I mean, it all evolves really organically. We started writing this last January, and we wrote for four months before we started shooting. And it's just us in a room throwing ideas at the wall. 
Um, and there's no bad ones, you know, but then we kind of take the craziest ideas, form them into coherent narratives and off we go. And because you're on cable, it, it means that you don't really get network messages like you have to be this, you have to do this, you have to sound like this. No, you know, True has, we're their first scripted show. They have oh. a couple coming down the pipeline, but we're their first scripted. So they've really trusted us to sort of set the tone. I mean, certainly they're a network and they reject a few things here and there because we're always pushing the boundaries. But uh, for the most part, they've left us alone. I'm dying to know what they rejected. <laughs> Maybe you can't say it. But what's amazing is the things they'll reject versus the things that get in. Like they'll reject something that we think is innocuous. And then we had an episode where Ben's character, Shoemaker, uh, gets a foreskin reattachment surgery <laughs> because he didn't want to have been. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they're like, this is you allow this. OK, great. I'm not sure our network screeners are going to allow that. All right. Uh, so <laughs> there were no swear words. That's true. Your character, Lauren Payton, likes to think of himself as the cool guy on campus. So who wants a virgin, barely alcoholic margarita? Who's in? Everybody? Yes, that's what I'm talking about, guys. We're having fun and we're learning. I like that it's virgin and barely alcoholic. <laughs> barely alcoholic. That, that, that doesn't uh, sync up somehow. How does your character evolve in the new season? Or is the point never to evolve? No, I'm actually proud of all of our characters because we all sort of evolve in the new season. I, I describe my character as a pretentious bro. Uh, <laughs> but he's also very just fragile. And it's a facade of, of coolness. And that cracks several times over the course of the season, which is just fun to play. Um, Ben's character is on the verge of a nervous breakdown the entire season. Andrew stays the same. It's always old dumb Fairbell. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's fun to play those because, you know, I was just a cynical smartass season one. Season two, it's, it's the cracks are, are beginning to show. I think there are similarities between your show and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in terms of the somewhat unredeeming, non-redeeming qualities of mm-hmm. the characters. Um, the writers of Always Sunny have said that their characters never evolve. Right. And we, you've made a different choice. We have. And, and we often get the It's Always Sunny comparison. We love that because we love you that do. show. Okay. But we definitely want to evolve just because it's more fun for us to play that. And it's more fun for us to act in different ways. Um, I think, you know, the nicest compliment we got, somebody on Twitter, some random person just said, this is like a live action Simpsons. And I love that. And the Simpsons, you know, they don't evolve that much, but there's these moments of heart that really hits you because you don't see them often. If you have a little bit of heart, it goes a long, long way. We're talking with Denver comedian Adam Caton Holland about his true TV scripted uh, comedy, uh, Those Who Can't. One of your favorite episodes, apparently, from season one is K-Pop Goes the Weasel, in which the teachers find themselves trapped in the school at night, fighting for survival after a student leaves a threatening note. I am done trying to rationalize any of this, all right? What the hell is going on around here? Trevin's name was one of the names in the letter, so someone tell me right now that this is just a dream! I bet it's my dream. I have scary dreams like this all the time after I watch Charmed. Just pinch me, and I'll wake up. Oh, I said pinch. Ah, maybe it's your dream. Oh, what are you doing? Well, if it was my dream, that's what I would do. Every time I hear that, I laugh at the slap. I don't know why a slap is so funny. I that, guess that's why they call it slapstick. I guess so. I'm surprised at how slapstick we got. We love to fall down and hurt each other. There were so many stunts this season. It was insane. You're, and you do your own stunts. We do, unless there's the big ones, in which case, like we threw Andrew's character out of the building, out of the second story of the school this season. And so we, you have a stuntman for that. There was a stuntman, but it's not, not a dummy. 
No, no, no. Okay. It's, stunt people are incredible. They're like a whole different breed of Hollywood. I, I love them. They just don't even have time for us actors. They're too cool. What did you love about that episode in particular? That episode I love, we filmed that with Bobcat Goldthwait, and uh, it's a horror movie conceit, so it was just fun to make essentially an indie budget horror film. We did it this season as well, another one with Bobcat, where it's all filmed kind of via GoPro, found footage type horror movie. Those are just fun. It's fun to film in the dark and run around screaming. Speaking of guest appearances, um, you have a, a new castmate for season two. Sherry O'Terry yeah. plays Smoot High's new principal. Uh, some may remember O'Terry from Saturday Night Live and skits like the Spartan cheerleaders or Nadine, uh, the Simma Down Now lady who works at uh, various places, including a hospital. Sir, your sass is unappreciated here. <laughs> so before your other wrist becomes shattered... I suggest you fill out these forms and have a seat and then and simmer, simmer down. down. That's right? correct. Thank you. Not over there, over here. Where? Over here! <laughs> what did you shout on your hearing drum in addition? I missed her so much when she left SNL, and I was really happy to see her on, on your lineup. Yeah, we couldn't believe she was willing to do it. She came in and auditioned, and she's like, I don't audition for anything, but I liked this show. And so she did, and she just ran away with the role. She was fantastic. She told me that all the sketches at SNL, she wrote everything for herself. Because she was like, I wasn't the best writer, but I'd just go into the room and, and do it. And they'd be like, okay, okay, let's do that sketch, which I thought was great. She's obviously... Um more of a veteran to television than you are. Is that intimidating? Or do you just find it exciting to be able to work with someone like that? We find it exciting. And honestly, it's kind of the reverse because we're so familiar with each other and we've been doing it for so long people come in and they're like oh these guys have a dynamic going the ensemble the three of you yeah and and, you know then the people we've added like Rory Scovel and Kyle Kinane and so she was actually intimidated and we're like Sherry do your thing we brought you in because we love you and then after that it was it was great how has it been as a comedian who's largely done stage work, you've done a lot of, of funny writing as well, um, to play to television cameras. It, and it's a multi-camera show, I'm guessing. Um, it's a single cam. Oh, it is a single cam. It's a single cam. All right. Um, but it's you're talking about the transition to acting? Yeah, how has that been? It's been hard. <laughs> but, you know, season two... I love, all of us are getting better at acting. And I watched season one, the first couple of episodes, I'm like, oof, what are we doing with our arms? But then uh, we figure it out. And I like to think of Seinfeld. You watch that show and the first couple of seasons, you're like, oh man, Jerry Seinfeld is not a very good actor. And then at some point he just (laughs) gets it and he's as good as everybody else on the show. I think we got it somewhere in season one. So season two is nice to hit the ground running and be more confident as actors. That's funny. Um, When I worked in television, it was always a question, what do you do with your arms? It feels so unnatural. You just, uh, yeah. You're standing there with these dead weight arms. You find tricks like, I think I will have a pen that I'm twirling in the scene, or I'll be drinking a cup of coffee and stirring my coffee. It's just little tricks like that, which are so amateurish when I sound when I say them out loud, but it, it helps. So, how many minutes is an episode? Last season was 22. This season's 24. We Ooh, have two have more minutes. Two more minutes. Do you think there needs to be a joke like every 30 seconds? Is that how you how you think about writing jokes or spreading them out? We don't think about the timing of jokes. We more just think about getting the funniest joke out there. But we're we're nihilistic in the amount of jokes we have. We cram so many jokes into this show that we, we, at the expense of story half the time. There's three comics writing it. Jokes Jokes really get in there. But of course, jokes can be visual because it's television. So do you write kind of gag jokes or is that a different job i'm surprised at how much we do that 
I'm amazed at how slapstick and gag and heavy we've gotten, but I love it. So we write a lot of that stuff, yeah. You, I see. Signs yeah. in the background or something. Exactly. Like that. Those yeah. are Easter eggs, we call them. Easter eggs. Easter eggs, little secret jokes for the viewer to find. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Denver's Adam Caton Holland is one-third of the comedy trio The Grolics. The second season of their television series Those Who Can't premieres October 6th on True TV. Season one is available on Hulu, in which you can see Adam do strange things with his arms. See clips and trailers at cprnews.org. And you can also catch The Grolics on Friday. They'll perform at Comedy Works in downtown Denver. And that's Colorado Matters for today. We are CPR News on Facebook and at Colorado Matters on Twitter. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.